Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner. I'm Richard Gillis. Today we go inside the fame business with Simon Oliveira, founder and managing director of Kin Partners, a sport and entertainment agency specialising in talent management and creative IP. Simon is well known as being a long-time PR and business advisor to David Beckham. So we talk about what he's learned from the experience about fame and celebrity and its relationship with the media and marketing worlds. Simon was also one of the founders of Otro, the player-led content platform which lists Beckham and Neymar, another kin client, as board members alongside Lionel Messi, Zinedine Zidane and host of other A-list footballers. It's a long way back to Simon's early days at Lynn Frank's PR in the 1990s before he moved to Ketchum and then on to 19 where he fell under the influence of Simon Fuller who famously created Pop Idol and was the key figure behind the launch of the Spice Girls and brand Beckham. So it's a chance to look at the rise of the superstar athlete as publisher and brand and we talk about the obvious potential of that trend and also the limitations and mistakes that get made along the way. If you enjoy the unofficial part of the podcasts, you might well like our weekly newsletter where we follow the threads of the conversation in more detail. You can sign up to that free of charge at unofficialpartner.com. In the meantime, here is Simon Oliveira. How things? What's going on? It's okay, actually. Thanks for doing this. Much appreciated. Are you keeping sane in this crazy world? Um, well, as I think as probably as sane as I was when I came into it. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> where where is where do you where do you spend it? Working from home. So obviously, we've gone like everyone else. We've gone into. Uh, a remote uh, state of mind, um, but today I've come into the office out of just to break just just to break it up. So we're on the corner of Tottenham Court Road and Goose Street. So we've got the office here, and I'm looking out at uh, an empty, fairly emptyish Tottenham Court Road, which is quite surreal. You know, you know. I was going to so I wanted to talk about um, kin, yes, and what that is, and and yeah. and obviously then sort of just and go back and sort of work out how you got here. So. <laughs> I thought um, this is going to be therapy. <laughs> for, one, for one of us. Let's talk about Kin first of all. Then. Yes. What, what, what is it? Because people obviously know you from your background, but just bring us up to date, right up to date as of today. Yeah, the, the, you know, obviously seven years ago, um, I left 19 Entertainment. And, and at the time, it is seven years ago now, it feels like a long time ago. But uh, at the time, the... I suppose what, what I was looking at and the intention when we first started this business was um, how do you create something quite original and unique in the marketplace? You know, an agency that can, I suppose, build and elevate brands similar to what, you know, I'd, you know, I'd worked on with Simon Fuller, but yeah. at the same time have an aggressive sales mentality uh, like a, a CA or an IMG. Um, so we wanted to marry, so I wanted to marry this, you know, you know, because I think when I worked in 19 with Simon, you know, we were we were great at building these palaces, right? But, uh, you know, we were reliant on brands to come to the palaces. So whether you're working with David Beckham or Lewis Hamilton or Andy Murray, you know, there wasn't a, you know, a concerted sales team. There was a, a two or three people, very good people like Nicky Turner, but there wasn't a... Uh, a, 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 a a US sales mentality in place. And I think what I wanted to do was, was to have that, that, that world of building great celebrity brands, you know, and working for, for clubs and institutions, but at the same time, you know, uh, bringing that, that US sales mentality. So by that, are you talking here about um, IP building? Yeah. So part, part of what we've done is obviously we guide and, nurture and, and, and manage uh, some obviously young talent and obviously some at the very top level like Neymar and others. But at the same time, you know, we believe that talent now and brands uh, are publishers in their own right. Uh, and they have to look at that world, you know, through the prism of being a, me- a, a media business owner. So I think we're living in a fascinating age from my perspective, you know, uh, you know, it's, I, I see so the likes of Beckham, Neymar, and Messi, and others, and LeBron James. They're like Monday publishing titans, right? So, but they've got the power of a Ferrari in their hands, but they're not quite sure. They're, they're still learning how to drive that Ferrari. So, you know, we're we're very much of of that. And look, it's something that Simon Fuller was very good at from early stage in 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 
how he created the Spice Girls and obviously American Idol and obviously the Beckham world, which I worked on closely with him. It was this vision of, of celebrity developing and building their own IP. Uh, and David, obviously, and Victoria were at the forefront of that, whether it's their fashion businesses or, or moving into the world of whiskey with Diageo or, or, or even running a football club or building a football club from scratch like yeah, into Miami. So uh, in essence, you know, IP is at the core of what can do. But obviously, we branched out into other areas like sponsorship, property sales and, and production and, and, and obviously the world of digital. So in terms of sort of placing this, it's interesting sort of theme this because um, so I had a, we did a thing with George Pine um, last week and obviously he ran IMG in the Forceman sort of era and then sold it to Ari Emanuel and that and Patrick Weitzel. So you've got that sort of, and one of the themes there was that his job was to take it from the McCormack age of, you know, famously an athlete, you know, a classic athlete rep type organization and turn it into more of a media content house. And, you know, you can argue the toss about, and Michael Payne on Twitter was having a go at me the other day about something I'd written about that transition and saying that McCormack had created the industry and his sort of legacy um, was spoiled by enforcement, blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of, you know, so we just put that debate to one side. But that move is inarguable, I would say. But I'm just wondering... um, how many let's talk about athletes how many athletes can sustain a sort of that sort of weight of being a publisher that's a good question i mean individually uh you've probably got a select group you know so you're talking it's the obvious names right it's the woods the the lebron james and the beckhams and, and the messies and the ronaldos of this world um however i think the savvier agencies and the managers and agents of these individuals understand that sometimes you're you're, you're bringing a, a group of individuals together. So you might focus on a group of younger footballers that you bring together as as one group in terms of their audience numbers. Uh, you know, we look, I think it's fascinating. You've got someone like Neymar, right, who's sitting there probably, you know, with hundred, you know, close to two hundred million, two hundred million plus followers, bigger than the New York Times, the LA Times, and Washington Post combined. He's got, the, he's got that ability to mobilize and captivate that audience. So it's a, it's a very attractive proposition. You know, LeBron obviously just signed a deal and Mav Carter, who works with him closely, have just inked a deal, you know, uh, uh, to grow their production arm and, and their content business. You know, I was one of the early founders of Optro, which was a sense that, you know, these individuals were coming together, Messi, Neymar and David, coming together and putting together their collective might to own to own a publishing house or a content studio so you know it, it, it's it's it, it's not going away this uh and uh, <laughs> you know and th- this move from merely being passive participants with with brands to to owners of 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 their own empires it, it, not only is it going to happen at that top level i think you'll start to see uh, smaller, small, you know, uh, slightly lesser athletes group together their their followers as well. Let's talk about Otro for a minute because I sort of I was working at Havas at the time, and that and Otro yeah. came in as a as a sort of client, and it was an it was it was the guys that that used to run Orange, so that it was a sort of cake thing. Um, Mark Whelan and and uh, Jeremy yeah. Dale and, and you know in the early iteration of that. Yeah. Um, what is Otro? What because I I sort of. I had a view. I thought I knew what it was, and then um, I became less sure. But no, just, no, no. What... I can talk to you about where we were at the very start of this process when we sat in a room with um, a great group of people, whether that was, you know, obviously Stephen Deval and Jason at 23 Capital to Johnny Nye, who is uh, chief European, uh, who was former Nike uh, and then went to 23 Capital and Dave Gardner, who works with uh, worked with me on David Beckham's world. The concept originally was this idea of what does a modern day fan club look like? You know, back in the past, you used to um, you used to send off you know a stamped addressed envelope. I'm showing my age here uh, to, to you know to a, to a PO box uh, in the middle of nowhere, and you would get a signed Brian Robson. Uh, shirt, uh, a pencil, uh, a pencil case, you know, and a very nice letter signed by him. And you would pay, you would pay a certain amount a month as part of that that process. And 
it originally started, the original thought was this idea of, okay, what does, if I've walked into, you know, a party at an event to use an analogy, and I see a smaller room at the very end there with a red, uh, with a red sort of uh, stand and a red uh, rope across it, not allowing you, what, you know, how do I get into that? that that next level of members club how do i get into that next that that that, that next area and, that, and the concept behind this was to to provide a world for the elite group of fans of those individuals which would be you know uh, intimate access to you know you know to those guys what you know content uh, that you would get promotional offers from their partners uh, and you felt that you know there would be a varying degree a, a grade of of of, of of membership in essence to this place i don't you know i'm going to say this honestly i don't i think the nature of how we moved at the start and um and obviously i wasn't there day to day we had a team led by you know jeremy dell at the start you know you know we would i think they took on too much too soon and they weren't ever they, we ever exacted that plan as we should have done but i think as it's evolved. I think the team there have now moved and pivoted it towards a content studio. So in essence, these guys together collectively are very compelling to the big platforms out there, whether you're DAZN or whether you're Disney Plus or, or ESPN or others. And there is a significant marketplace of content in which you can, you can format ideas and, and, and films and documentaries. And, and, and that's where it sits currently. And I think, it's found its its sweet spot. I'd like to think further down the line, it would add those other elements that we talked about at the very start. But in essence, I think there is there is enormous scope to get that content studio right. And Claire McArdle, who's the managing director there now, is doing an incredible job with her team of of, of creating these 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 formats and films and ideas and selling them on to to to, to the big hitters. What about the so in terms of the um, let's just go back. As we said to the to the start, how did you get into this this caper? Where did you grow up? What was your what was your sort of route? I'm not, I'm a I'm an indebted son of <laughs> and grandson of immigrant families. You know, my dad uh, came to this country when he was 16 with my grandmother and my grandfather from Portugal. You know, they lived under a dictatorship there, Salazar, and uh, in very difficult circumstances. My mother's father was Polish and you know, fell into Russian labor camps in the war, ended up fighting uh, with uh, the allies and Monty's desert rats and, uh, and then settling in Rotherham. And then he married my Irish grandmother who also came from an, an immigrant family. So from a very early age, it was instilled in me, you know, that nothing comes easy, uh, that you had to work incredibly hard. Uh, and I was a kid from North London, you know, uh, bouncing around from, you know, uh, 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 my mother who was divorced in my mother's house where I lived and obviously in my dad's house they were divorced and various other people so from a very early age you know I became sort of an expert in human behavior and people and I think that I gravitated towards I studied politics at university I gravitated towards um a role in which I, you know I played to my skill set very much of doing that and I ended up my first sort of foray into the business was obviously Lynn Franks and, and the weird and wonderful world of Lynn Franks at the time. So from, and, and Lynn Franks, you, you were, there's quite a few people have come through Lynn Franks. There was yeah. a, um, and then you, you went to catch him. Is that right? Yeah. Well, Lynn Franks, look, Lynn Franks was this incredible creative uh, engine of an agency, you know, which, which, as you said, brought some incredible people out there, you know, who went on to, either run their own businesses like Andrew Block and Graham Goodkind who ran Frank, who ran uh, and created Frank to like Julian Henry who went off, you know, went to Henry's house and then 19 Entertainment uh, and or Julian Payne who's now running, you know, Prince's, Prince Charles's office. And these are my sort of my contemporaries at the time of where I worked. And it was a very much a sink or swim mentality Um I remember as a young work experience, a kid just being thrust into client facing situations and I, I'd barely been there, you know, so it looked, it, it, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that now, but it was the making of me back in the day. And I remember I was work experience at the time and I could see, I really wanted to stay and be part of the graduate scheme there. So I, I got half an hour in, the, in, in Graham, who was the managing director's um, diary at the time. And I did this, I did this presentation on, 
from slave to citizen of Lynn Franks, which was this sort of twenty, which was this twenty-page sort of uh, this twenty-page PowerPoint doc of of why he should employ me in my journey there. And I've look, even to this day, I, I, I probably cringe looking back at what that looked like or what it was. But you know, he, I think I don't think he'd ever seen it before, and he was greatly encouraged by it. And you know, a few months later, I was on the graduate scheme, and I was doing everything from you know to washing his car to working on the Spice Girls and, um, you know, and, uh, and London Fashion Week and various other things. So, so you, you, you were sort of effectively, you were a slave who was trying to work their way into the slave ship. We have to be very careful what we say now in today's day and age, of course. It was, I think it was, yeah, it was probably a, a, a terrible analogy to use at the time. It probably <laughs> wouldn't, 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 wouldn't work now, but I think at the time it was from surf, you know, those who <laughs> know out there, surf, S-E-R-F, surf yeah. and then Frank. But, but, you know, in all seriousness, I mean, just that part of me looks for that now in 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 the young you know in a, a young kid that might walk through the door of of kin now I, you know and I, I'm looking more for just that just that creative spark that self starter initiative that you know I may be seeing some of what I saw in myself back then you know it's quite it's quite difficult now because I mean obviously you know there are a lot of posh boys floating around PR and sports business, sports marketing, isn't there? It's quite, you know, it's, it's quite difficult for people from outside quite a narrow sort of a social set to, to break in. Yeah. I mean, look, you're right in saying that. And I think we've all got a job as a sports industry to, to create more of a diverse, um, a, a diverse industry and not, not diverse in just in terms of uh, color, sex or creed. I'm talking in terms of, you know, kids like, you know, from where I came from, you know, from, from poor upbringings who, who see an opportunity. I mean, you see a lot in football, you know, most agents are, you know, have come from working class families or have come from set up, but you, you don't, uh, you don't see it. You're right. Uh, in the sports business or PR, you know, uh, and it would be fantastic. And I think, I think every company, every company should do more to encourage it, not just in terms of the recruitment process, but, you know, we're, we're doing a lot more work with trying to ingrain ourselves in schools as well and, and, and seeing if I can do more talks within, you know, inner city schools across the country, just in, just to show that, show these kids that, that there is, there isn't, you know, there is, other, there are other opportunities out there and they've got, they've got the intelligence and the capability of doing. The, um, I, I mentioned Ketchum because I, I, I sort of, uh, message Steve Martin who then said <laughs> I said what should I ask Si and he said um, ask him about Ketchum and I think I think he was doing that because he wanted him wanted you to talk about him but uh, yeah, yeah, if we yeah, put yeah. Steve to one side who else was in that room well we Ketchum obviously Lim Franks was I mean, we're going back a step here Lim Franks went through this rebrand I remember going to this corporate venue in the middle of London um, and the new MDs at the time did this whole uh, uh, presentation very slick on how catch how sorry Lynn Franks needed to move on we needed to change the name they needed to have a fresh start I felt it was a mistake but they 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 well they went down that path and um, and it then became life or life PR uh, and Life was then purchased by obviously Ketchum at the time and became essentially its consumer division uh, and not only consumer division, but also sponsorship. So um, at the time I was obviously working with the likes of Andrew Block and others. And then Andrew went and set up Frank uh, and we did some incredible campaigns. I mean, we, we did, we worked on um, some really great brands like, you know, at the time Arcadia and, and Procter & Gamble and, and Carlsberg. But our work in sport was ad hoc, you know, um, and then they made a move to bring in Steve, who was, I think, had come straight from Adidas. And Steve and I effectively then built the business. I became his number two uh, at the time. And, you know, we then went hell for leather, you know, uh, out and um, started to build what was Ketchum Sport. Uh, Ketchum Sport existed in New York, of course, but we, we, we built its first sort of London incarnation. And, and, uh, and yeah, we did a fantastic job. We launched the first climber call, which for Adidas, and we worked uh, with Lloyd's TSB and a variety of other brands. And look, I learned a lot from from Steve at the time, and you know, and we worked well as a team, and we're still great friends. 
What um, is that about that time? I'm assuming is a sort of Beckham moment. Is it? Is that when you first? When did you first meet David? Yeah. Look, we 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 obviously no. I, I, you know, everyone says, well, you know, he must have. He must have. They must. You must have met him, and he must have worked with you at the time, and that's what led you to Dave as well. No, we would. Have, I would have been one of the many minions that would have worked on some of the brand campaigns that 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 he had. Not to say I, I met him a couple of times, but briefly. Um, but the opportunity to work with David, which was back in two thousand four, came actually via a former person who who recommended me to somebody at Nineteen Entertainment, and I went to. You know, I was called out of the blue by somebody there, and you know, it was very, very vague. It was like we'd love to, you know, we'd love to talk to you, we, you know, about potentially setting up a sports division, and would you come and talk to us? And I said, yeah, I'll come over. I went over there, and there were lots of questions, but by the end, I was, oh, hang on a minute, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem I, I'm not here for this particular reason. And by the end of the conversation, it was, well, actually, we'd like to talk to you about um, coming to. To, to, to be a key part of David's world and run his comms globally. And, and would you be open to another interview? And, and obviously the rest is history. I, because uh, it's interesting with, um, with the, with the sort of legacy of Beckham is that what, well, around that time, because obviously you and Steve and a couple of other people have all sometimes prefaced the architect of brand Beckham. And there, you know, there's quite often in, you know, when you're interviewed in various places and is there a sort of, I don't know, is that what, what, who was, who, 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 who should have that, that sort of uh, effort? Let's be very clear. It's him, you know, and he's a very, uh, he's an incredible human being, very savvy. Uh, You're talking about Beckham now, not Steve Martin. Yeah, not Steve, not Steve Martin. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, let's not blow too much smoke up his, uh, his, his backside. But yes, no, I would say that, um. Yeah, no, David, obviously, you know, through his own ability and nous and perseverance and resilience uh, was, you know, the architect of his his brand. And obviously, Victoria was a contributing factor. I think, look, they had, you know, one of the strengths I think David has always had is to surround himself with very good people uh, that advise him. Uh, and he listens, you know, and um, it, look, there's the scene in 1917, that famous Sam Mendes scene where you're the seamless one in which the two young soldiers walk across the the uh, trenches with gunfire overhead um bombs flying in different directions and certainly the first two years i felt of my world <laughs> my my life in david's world was this, that scene you know it was you know it was the tabloid media in its pomp you know and in its full power um unvetted um there was, you know, uh, I remember the first day that I started was the day after, you know, he missed the penalty at Euro 2004. So it was, you know, it was quite unique as an individual to, for him to be uh, a factor for every section of a newspaper and, and the front half of a newspaper. And there was a demand on every, on every, um, on every journalist to produce a Beckham, particularly the t- particularly the showbiz ones uh, or the sports ones, to produce a Beckham story a day. You know, so there was an element at the start in which batten down the hatches. We've got to deal with the fight. We've got to navigate our way through this. But I think coming from a brand world and the experience of having strategically managed global brand campaigns and, and you know and and put long term. Um, plans together sort of helped, I think, certainly in David's world, you know, and helped me strategize alongside a very good group of other people, you know, where the Beckham branch, how the Beckham branch should evolve over, over a 10 to 15 year period. What's it like when you say, I mean, you, you know, in the, in the face of that sort of, you know, media onslaught, and you're right in that, you know, the, the, the tabloid, the power of the tabloids aren't, isn't the same today as it was then. No, no. What was it? What did it feel like on a day-to-day basis? Look, it were, you, no weekend. <laughs> there was no weekend that you had to yourself. There was always a, you would expect a call on Saturday from or Friday evening for one of the Sundays in which it effectively ruined your weekend. Um, you would have to deal with a consistent level of um, intrusion. Uh, on all levels, not just of David, but the staff around him. 
look, I think there were moments, you know, and I, I'm not afraid to say this, there was, I, you know, I felt I was doing a very good job. But I think there, it, it came to a crescendo in a particular moment, I remember. I don't know if you remember this moment, where David was playing in a game um, against Wales um, in a World Cup qualifier. And he scored this beautiful goal, uh, a curl, a, a, pearl, a perler from outside the area, curled into the top corner. Um, and then got into a running sort of battle with Ben Thatcher, who was the left back at the time, and got himself injured. Um, and then there was a moment in which he got a yellow card. And so the papers the next day were Beckham disgrace. Uh, he's got a yellow card, can't be trusted, even though he'd scored an amazing goal. But obviously, clearly, there was an agenda. And there was another story I was dealing with at the time, which was, you know, which was, you know, a story which was on the front half of the paper. Um, and, you know, David at the time, I remember calling me up saying, you know, uh, you know, I think people have got this all wrong. You know, I feel, you know, uh, they're having a go at me when they shouldn't be having a go at me. You know, you know, Henry, you know, Henry Wint at the time is an English journalist. Can I, you know, uh, it's been really positive. I'd love to speak to him and just sort of talk. Now, I would never have done this or ever do this in the future, but I allowed that conversation to happen um, unaided. And then the next day on the front page of the Daily Telegraph at the time was, it was Beckham. I deliberately got the yellow card. Uh, and then we had a, the front page of every newspaper that week, um, tearing into David, obviously, in a hysterical fashion, as they always did. And then at the same time, tearing into me and my and and obviously my handling of of that particular moment. And I remember going to Portugal at the time. I had the I had the the christening of my godson in Portugal, uh, and it was a great time actually to go there because it sort of reminded me of what you know of what life is really about in the real world. But there was a moment there where I was saying, I, I said to myself, and I'm sure anyone that's listening has had those moments. You you know is this worth it you know is it worth it you know because this is something that you can um you know this is constant this is a constant barrage and I, I remember saying to myself and the people around me at the time that were incredible say you know you know you're doing a fantastic job stick with it what you're doing is the right thing to do um and we came out of it you know we came out of it but there you know there were certainly those moments where you know it, it, it what it's as intense a job as any when it comes to the full glare of the media and what's he like in those moments look I, I i think he's you know i think he's been undeserving of a lot of the hysterical uh nature of an attacks of some people at the time he's in you know i think he's always been uh like he's a fantastic father a person and he's always been passionate about his country, diligent. Um, but he goes into, a, I suppose, a state of Zen, similar to how I am, you know. And, um, you know, he obviously at times, you know, smiles at the incredulity of it all um, at times. But I think his ability to remain focused and, um, and calm in, in, in the face of what are, you know, uh, you know, global whirlwinds at times you know uh, is 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 admirable what um so we missed the bit out which is you at 19 and simon fuller one question i had was what you what you learned from simon fuller he's a you know obviously a a pivotal figure in yeah. in both beckham and the you know lots of cultural moments of the last sort of few decades but what what makes him tick look he's uh um i i spent 10 Incredible years with Simon, actually 12 very good years, 12 very good years, and obviously 10 within 19. Um, you're talking about uh, an original thinker, somebody who's uh, uh, ahead of the curve in how he thinks, you know, relentless in his uh, desire to uh, be successful. I think he always, you know, when people talk of IP now um, as if it's a new thing. <laughs> it's you know it, it, you know it, yeah yeah I mean the pick idol as pick idol as a, a as a concept right the idea now I wouldn't say he's he wasn't the first to originate talent competitions and brand yeah and and, and formats you know that was done back in you know the seventies um, 
but this idea that you could create a TV show and then off a TV show, you would own the rights to the artist that came through that TV show, plus um, a share of advertising, plus the touring rights, plus merchandise, um, plus, plus, plus. So, you know, I think the way we always looked at everything, which is the same mentality I have, is, 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 is how is this original? You know, how can we reimagine something? How can we constantly reinvent, you know, for a different generation? And, and that's what I learned from Simon. And in terms of his the sort of work ethic, is that something, again, because he's sort of quite often people mention this, that, you know, he's, he's relent, there's a relentlessness to it that he wants, that he's got very high standards. Is that yeah. something that you think yeah, carried through? absolutely. I mean, you don't, uh, it, it's all well and good thinking of an idea. Um, as we all know, we all sit in pubs and think of an idea uh, and then you need to make it happen, right? And invariably in making a major idea, particularly a global idea or an idea that that, that is a franchisable one in, in every market globally, the, the, the level of detail that goes into that, the highs and lows of that journey, you know, you need to be on top of, um, the team on a consistent basis and you need a team of people that you know that, that you can trust that you can work with and Simon is as I go back to that boy he is he was always relentless was always thinking of where the next move was happening or the next innovation was happening and you know uh, and I, I that's why he's been you know one of the most successful entrepreneurs of that our country's producer. So it's interesting I was I was just sort of rereading, I don't know whether I read it first time, but the Beckham experiment with Grant Wiles book about when um, he's breaking America, you know, the, the first time around yes. um, and in LA. And, and there's a sort of, there's a, there's a bit in there where you're involved, where you're chasing down a, what you see as a bad photograph that was, that, that <laughs> went along with the, you know, it's just the sort of micromanagement level where they, they, taken a couple of photos one for a cover and then the other one you'd seen somewhere and and had landed on and were chasing you know is that it, it sort of got a a level of detail that and and sort of as i say it was that feeling of control that that we need to control every aspect of the message the image all of the touch points that anyone is going to come into contact with um is that possible now is that is that a, was that a sort of moment in time or do you think that's still attainable in terms of that level of control of image i want to look if we had had that level of control i don't believe that you know um we would have experienced some of the things that we did right uh it, it wasn't you know i i think that there was always a um there was always a view in which, you know, we had to, you know, there were high standards, right? So whether that was through imagery or execution um, or enacting the vision that we have, we always operated to high standards and, and that, that, that hasn't changed. And, you know, that comes from the man himself, you know, in, in how he sees things and how he acts on the football pitch as well as off it, you know. So that, you know, I, I wouldn't, I like, can, one man's control is another is another person's you know, high standards of, of operation. Um, but, you know, I, I, look, you're right in saying, I mean, if, if you go back over the generational management and interactions between celebrities uh, and media, I, I, you could go back to the 40s and the 50s in which there sort of was this sort of unofficial pact between celebrities and journalists, you know, mm -hmm. um, that for access, it was agreed that the private lives or your private life wouldn't be would would remain private, right? And then I think you then went into a period. I'm not I'm not going to be exact here, but certainly in the 60s and 70s, when it was where I feel we're at now to a degree, actually, uh, where you felt there it, it was important to have an edge, an opinion. You know, it was the counterculture period. You know, mm. celebrities felt they could say what they and actually they were encouraged to say what they wanted in the main. I should say. Um, and then I think what you saw in the 80s was the advent of tabloid media where, and maybe back end of the late 70s with George Best, you know, where the news from the bedroom was, was as relevant as that on the pitch. And I think what happened is similar like to see how these mammals mutate in 
in, in hostile environments, they gain protection. I think what happened in then is that you saw these celebrities hire PR firms, right? So as a protective shield around around themselves, right? So, you know, they, you know, they wanted to keep their private lives private, you know, in essence, or they didn't feel, well, why do the journalists have, you know, why, did, why, why do I have to talk about stuff away from, from what I'm doing in terms of my career? Um, whereas I think now you're right in saying now, more access equals more engagement, right? So those that are more successful out there, particularly influencers, provide this, this unfettered access, which, which leads to more engagement. So I think, you know, I call it the sort of, I've called it before this post-mystique era, you know, and, and you're right in saying that, you know, but I think many celebrities are still grappling with how to, ma- how to manage that access, you know, how, you know, you know, most accept you can't now be behind this, walled mansion, you know, uh, with, with protection and control at every juncture. You've got to let the fan through the front door and into your house, to use an analogy, but w- which rooms do you let them in, you know? Uh, which, wh- how much access do you give? Um, and those influences that start from ground zero, you know, so those influences that start without a reputa- without reputation or without any history, you know, effectively, you know, and that have been born in this age of social media, have, you know, have created a, their own houses and there's cameras in every room and you've got unfettered access. So, so I think the more established ones, the ones that are already renowned for talent or, um, you know, or, or being successful in their careers are still grappling with this idea of how much access do I get. And you can easily, ter- I mean, that sort of them, that, that, that sort of antagonism between the media and celebrities and stars, you know, that feels... Like um, you can easily turn a, a, an interesting person into a boring person in, you know, in terms of a celebrity, can't you? Because actually they just clam up and they, be, they don't say anything. And then they say, oh, well, they've got nothing to say. And you, it's very difficult to, for the, the public and also you know, journalists are always, yeah. you then are thrust into, okay, well, I need to ask more aggressive questions, try and get something out of them. You, know, the, the, you can't be seen as being soft on these celebrities because all they'll talk about is their sort of broader purpose. And you, know, you get a lot of grandstanding by celebrities also. So you've got, this, these, you've got these, these sort of variables at play and it's quite hard sometimes to, to sort of work out what I think of famous people because you can see the machinery and the problem of them trying to communicate clearly from one side but also on the media which is less powerful blah 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 and needs more outrageous stories um you can see that's not going to work you can see it in politics you can see it in celebrity yeah i agree with you on on that Richard. i I think you're seeing i think you're seeing with we're seeing a new generation now come through uh, and you see, obviously, the likes of Marcus Ratchford and Raheem Sterling and, and LeBron James and others, uh, where they're now not as reliant on a third party to communicate their message. I think what happened in the past is when you were reliant on another individual to communicate your message or several people, it, 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 it plays this sort of game of Chinese whispers. So what you said in that press conference or that behind the scenes briefing, and I think a lot of players at the time would find this, that what they said in, in what said would turn out into a different headline or certainly it would look very different from all the emphasis or the context. And I feel that, you know, I think we're now in a place where because they own their own channels that you'll start to see, um, you'll start to see these individuals and stars be more honest in what they're feeling and what they're saying at the right time. You only have to look at somebody I work with very close and Lewis Hamilton and what he's saying now. Now you could argue, you know, Lewis has set himself, you know, a challenge now, right? Which is, you know, where he sees injustice, um, he's got to call it out. So that's whether that's, you know, whether that's quite admirably with what he's doing now. But, you know, uh, if he sees it, it, the argument will be back from some journalists is, okay, we we support you fully and we're with you fully. But, you know, um, what do you have to say about, you know, uh, the situation uh, in Bahrain or Hong Kong, you know, and, it, it, you know, it, it does force celebrities uh, and stars, you know, and I would, by the way, I would encourage this fully. I, th- I think it's important that you see the real side of stars and, um, and whatever people say about, you know, David's world, the reason why 
David really connects with people and is connected with people. People always saw a genuine side to David and, and, and his real side, you know, and, and um, I think what, what you're seeing now is, 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 this, is, is this very admirable and I think really important culture where the likes of Areem Sterling feels free to question uh, the perception of him and, and he'll come out on the forefront and, and he'll speak on issues that he's passionate about. Mm. Do you, um, the last dance, the Michael Jordan film, have you, have you watched it? Yes. What did you think of it? I thought very compelling. Um, I think it had a great story arc, you know, uh, there, there were several people, us included, uh, you know, we had, see, I, we've done a couple of co-productions in the past with, uh, with Fullwell on, uh, Iron Bolt. Obviously, we did we did a cinematic film on Iron on Usain Bolt. We did Class of '92, uh, as well as um, as well as a film about David and seven seven games and seven continents called For the Love of the Game. So, one of the the, the things we wanted to do was to do the story of the the story of the Bulls and the story. You know, so we 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 pitched into Jordan to do it at the time with Fullwell and um, at the time. You know, I think he had already been planning on this. I think from his perspective, he wanted you know, uh, to have control and to be, you know, for it to, you know, I, I you know, MJ and Michael, Michael Jordan should have control, control over everything he does. I mean, he's, he's at that level of, that level of fame. So, you know, I, I, I think it was a compelling story in itself, which was the final season of the Bulls. I was surprised how much access they had. Effectively, it became the definitive dark on Michael Jordan. Um, but obviously the criticism from some causes will be Michael was clearly uh, one of the producers. He clearly uh, had control. But I felt that there were moments in that film in which they asked him some difficult questions. They might not have probed him like uh, you would do necessarily in a, in a media interview. But then again, that's, that wasn't the forum for it. So. so is that, I mean, essentially, I, I asked the question because it seemed to sort of correspond with what you were saying earlier about this balance between actually as a viewer or as a, as a sort of punter looking at these things, we are going to have to accept that the, if you compare that to, for example, you have to accept a, a certain level of editorial control by the star because they're just not going to be able to, they're not going to do it otherwise. Yeah. But yeah. it's yeah. up to the, the good ones will accept that, okay, we want to show, you know, some honesty as well. I mean, I, I just, if you compared that, The Last Dance to, for example, you know, the Maradona film, Yes, which is a, is a you know completely editorially driven yeah piece. Um, it's it's they are different. I guess I'm thinking aloud here. There are good bits of the Jordan bit, but I couldn't. I came away thinking, okay, yeah, but Nike and you got some big corporate machinery whirring away just below the surface, and quite often it you know it jarred a bit. Yeah. No, I, I, to be honest, the experiences I've had is most when we talk of control, you don't. We don't walk into these interviews or documentaries dictating the questions that are asked, right? So it, they're very much you're in a situation w- which Michael will know that he's going to be asked those questions and and some of the controversial questions uh, during that time. But I think what some want to make sure, which is probably still the residues of of older interactions between celebrities and, 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 and media organizations is that it will not be spun. You know, you know, what I say will be, will be shown in full, you know, that you're really going to give me a right of reply, that you're going to allow me to uh, say what I'm going to say and and not edit it. And, uh, and it's going to be there in picture that 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 doesn't stop you from speaking to somebody else. It doesn't stop you from asking me the hard question. Um, But that's where I sit. You know, I feel that, you know, you, you you should any journalist should be allowed to ask what they they should be asked. You know, I haven't always liked it. <laughs> you know, so but you know, uh, I'll be honest. You know, so before uh, Charlie Sell calls in and other journalists call it, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, sometimes you you feel that you're in a situation where something should be celebrated, but you know, you're dealing. You, you spend you know uh, the first half an hour talking about. Uh, a negative issue and I think in the past you know it's a journalist's job to to look at the controversials and the, the controversial and the challenging parts of of a story you know as I say good news doesn't sell 
you know, uh, from that perspective. So just to round us off, um, the the future bit. Yes. So the future question is, okay, you're sitting there, Tottenham Court Road, and yeah. you've got this, you know, uh, agency. Where do you think we're heading? Because there's lots of agencies out there. We all, we've all read the story, seen the, you know, the, the COVID news and it's hard times for sport in the next period. Um, that's a, that's a given, but where do you think the sort of rays of hope are? Look, I, I, I don't, if anyone has a crystal ball, you know, and is saying that they can predict where, you know, where the next two years will go, I think, you know, we, you've got to be very wary of false profits. You know, I think, um, nobody's quite sure what the new normal will be you know we do know you know we do know that certain industries have been affected um and will be will take a while to recover like travel airlines you know so a, 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 an agency foraying into that world or a club trying to tie up an airline deal at the moment i think or or, or that is reliant on an airline deal is you know clearly there will be there will be conversations happening um However, there are some incredible opportunities, right? And there's some incredible growth sectors, whether that's in, in the world of FMCG, gaming, um, delivery tech. Um, so there will be opportunities. So I think those agencies that have innovated, that have broadened their appeal um, beyond, you know, one or two sectors, I think those, you know, it, clearly, you know, those agencies that rely on live events uh, um, are going to be in a pickle. Uh, for the next year or so, but you know, you know, they're, they're big enough to withstand it. If you're an IMG uh, endeavour, I think you're big enough to withstand it to a degree. Uh, you would hope. Um, although you know, every agency out there will go through difficulty, but there will also be opportunities at this present time for those with the resources to go and make acquisitions, to go out and buy rights, to 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 essentially become owners in in particular areas, which is what was happening before. I think from our side. You know, we'd already moved quite heavily into recruiting in the sponsorship world. So from, you know, we're heavily, I've heavily invested in a team that, that, you know, that I hope will start to become a player in the sports sponsorship arena and start to challenge some of the big boys. I think you need to, any agency worth its sort has to be able to say to a club or a or a celebrity that we can grow your social media audience and really analyse and the data around your fan base and what you can do. Going back to if these individuals are becoming media titans and publishing owners in their own right, then you've got to be able, you've got to have a robust division within your agency that understands this world. world. And, uh, you know, from our side, we're, you know, what we used to do ad hoc films in the past and content plays, you know, you know, significant ones. But, you know, we've set up, uh, uh, we're about to set up a, 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 a strong production arm, both at an elite, a high premium level in terms of films and formats, but also, you know, with young content creators that can that can work on behalf of our clients. So there is a there's a spot at the bottom. It's interesting talking to um, uh, Aaron at uh, Goat yes. um, recently, and he was making the making the point that that actually the there is people have got the influencer thing a bit wrong in the past in that they've, they've jumped on YouTubers and, and whatever, but he said, actually niche. And, you know, you can't be too niche in some cases that actually filtering down at the bottom, uh, you know, below the sort of Beckham-esque um, Neymar yeah. end of things, that there is a whole different market operating there that, that is going to grow. Um, I mean, he would say that wouldn't he? Cause he's in that game, but that, that does feel like, you know, there's a, there's a it's a quite a decent argument yeah and I, I think also those that talk about the the death of the major celebrity it's uh being disingenuous you know you know I, I think there's room for both i think there's room for the elite level individuals that are just masters in their own domains or are really talented uh and have a skill an art a way of performing and have longevity in their lives. You know, I think there's absolutely room for those, you know, people and those people will still be in demand from some of the bigger brands. Uh, but, you know, you, you know, everyone needs to have a greater understanding of, you know, the democratization of this world as well, which has led to, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
multimillionaires being born out of young kids opening uh, boxes of toys to you know singing on TikTok to to creating you know to sitting there and playing Fortnite. I think there's you know what what is here to stay certainly one of the areas I think which will come out of this which we're looking into we have looked into heavily for a while now is obviously the world of gaming and esports you know that and certainly this period will reinforce that and from a lot of the contacts that I have over Silicon Valley that that seems to be the next big you know it was a growth area but that seems to be where a lot of people are turning their attention to as well and it, it's its own world isn't it I mean it's I sometimes I cringe of when I see clubs or or sort of famous yeah. people trying to sort of shoehorn their way into it and you know it's almost like it's like William Hague with his baseball cap around the wrong way you know it yeah. feels like it just feels wrong it's one that's a reference yeah, for the millennials yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they, by the way and and you're talking about some of the most savvy audiences they can see it a mile off so if you're not if if it looks like you're coming in uh, uh for the gold rush but not putting any effort in or don't have uh or don't have a reason to be there or resonance or an authenticity which is you know really important i think in this world then you know then these kids will switch off very quickly yeah well, listen, Sai, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. really enjoyed that. Pleasure. And uh, good luck with Kin and the new thing. Yeah, I feel like I need to go and lie on the couch now uh, because it's felt cathartic, like a therapy. <laughs> See, I could charge for this stuff. You could, you do. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, Monday, there you go. Thank you, mate. Unofficial partner reaches thousands of senior sports business decision makers around the world every week of the year. So it's the perfect marketing channel if you're seeking to talk directly to the global sports business. If you'd like to work with us, please get in touch with the co-founder of the company, Sean Singleton, via sean at unofficialpartner.co.uk or via the website unofficialpartner.com. 